trauma. That's what we're talking about today. And it's a word that's used a lot in our 22Q community. I'm so, so honored to have psychotherapist Larry Shashansky define what trauma is, learn how to recognize it, how to heal from it, and continue to move forward from traumas that we face. So I am honored to introduce you to Larry Shashansky. Hello, and welcome to the 22Q Podcast. My name is Becky White, and today I'm honored to be talking about a topic that I've wanted to talk about for a while now, and that is trauma, how it affects us, how we can experience trauma and then have PTSD later on in life and learn different ways of how to recognize it, heal from it, and move forward. And today um, to talk about trauma, I have psychotherapist Larry Shashansky with over 45 years of experience. He is a wonderful resource of navigating traumatic experiences and sharing what he has learned over the years. So Larry, thank you for being on and welcome. Please introduce yourself. Uh, You're welcome. And I appreciate the opportunity to do this. This is important for me as well. Like you said, Larry Shashansky, I've been a a licensed clinical social worker. I've been in practice for 45 years. I've worked for uh, private hospitals, nonprofit hospitals. I've worked for family service agencies, child and family service agencies. I've worked, done a ton of community work, uh, volunteer work. I've worked for um, uh, in trauma-based organizations. Uh, I now I now have a private practice that I've been in for quite a few years now, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to do this. I really do. I think it's important. It is important work. And we thank you for taking the time. I asked you to be on because I've found through doing these podcasts with many families now that the word trauma comes up a lot. Traumatic experiences, whether they're medical or family or past experiences that people then need to deal with after having a 22Q child or even individuals who have 22Q experiencing trauma. And I felt that this topic is very common among our community. And I wanted to just reassure everyone that, you know, trauma is a response to stressful events or underlying events or situations that we may not even be aware that our stress response is responding to. And that effect can be long lasting, but the possibility of healing is possible. And so I guess to start off, I'd love to just hear, you know, what is your definition of trauma? So for for me, trauma is a single event or an ongoing series of events or happenings in our lives that create distress um, uh, and adversely affect our lives emotionally, uh, psychologically, uh, socially, interpersonally, with our families, with our communities. Um, That is trauma. And trauma can be anything. Trauma doesn't have to be like most of us believe. It has to be this huge, big event, like some sort of accident that we've witnessed. And trauma is any event or series of events, like I said, short-term or long-term, ongoing, that affect us negatively and affect our lives either interpersonally or intrapersonally over a period of time. It's an event or a series of events that are is frightening. We feel unsafe. We feel unprepared for. We feel isolated and alone about. 
we feel out of control, we feel powerless, and that could be any kind of event at all. And it, it could either and be an event that happens to us or an event that we witness happening to others. And that could be others that are we're very close to in the case of 22Q, or it could be an event that we just witnessed. We don't even know somebody's who's going through it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the kind of like variables or or situations that create, in my mind, a traumatic event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because in the 22Q community, off the top of my head, I can think of a couple stories of caregivers, parents that have gone through really traumatic deliveries where their child was in distress, they needed to go into an emergency siege section and find themselves having a baby and then never seeing the baby for a couple of hours because they're in the ICU. That I would think would be a very significant, obvious traumatic experience. But when you were just talking, I was thinking to myself, even if your child had a birth that was natural labor, very planned out. And then later on, you found your child at 22Q and you have to see them continually getting poked and prodded, whether it's an IV or a blood draw or a MRI scan that they're crying in. Would those also be considered smaller traumas? So I don't look at small versus medium versus large traumas. A trauma in my mind is a trauma. However, it affects us individually is still considered a trauma. And for some people, no, that wouldn't affect them at all. It would not cause distress. And for other people, that would cause whatever distress it causes and, and affect their lives adversely. You know, it's interesting because one of the ways I look at trauma is that it's abnormal behavior in relation to abnormal situations is normal. So a traumatic response is not pathological right? It can happen anywhere at any time. And it's normal response. It's our mind and our bodies that are normally responding to something so abnormal or so out of the ordinary that it just rocks our world. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what this is about. And so I think it's really important for us to understand this is not a pathology. This is not a mental illness. Trauma and our reactions to trauma is really normal behavior in response to something so out of our norm that it's just like, it almost feels surreal at times. And we can we can actually dissociate or disconnect. It's like, uh, we've all had the experience of, of driving down the road and all of a sudden going, oh my God, did I go through that red light or did I, oh, how did I, what, you know, what kind of like spacing out, that's a disassociation. And what creates that is that when, when it's almost like a semi-hypnotic trance and we just, we just dissociate it from our emotions and trauma can, can create that kind of dissociation for ourselves. And so for some people, a, the birth that you've just talked about rolls off my back, Right. It's just not, an, and for other people, it adversely affects them in many different ways. So that's how I look at it, if right. that makes sense. It does. It does. Thank you. So now that we've talked that there's different types of trauma, you know, as I was researching this, I saw complex trauma, childhood trauma, medical trauma, sexual trauma, family trauma. Would you mind just educating our audience on the different types of trauma? 
So uh, there's also acute trauma, there's chronic trauma, there's emotional trauma. I mean, we could we could categorize all kinds of trauma. I personally don't think that's helpful. Well, I think it's more of a, a research, data-driven distinctions between this, that, and the other thing. The way that I look at trauma is that, again, it's, it's any event that affects us adversely, meaning it affects our relationships. What is an issue is how does it affect my life? How does it affect my life spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, interpersonally, socially, community-wise? How does it affect my life? So there's obvious kinds of uh, effects in our lives. One is depression, right? It can create a sense of, of tremendous depression and hopelessness about our present situation as well as our future, right? There's anxiety, the sense of being overwhelmed and, oh my God, I don't know how I made it through that. I don't know how I'm going to continue to make it through. This is just so overwhelming. I can't, I can't deal with it kind of thing. And again, these are normal reactions. It's not a major mental illness or chronic depression that you would get. This is a normal response to having that kind of experience. So one is depression, one is um, anxiety, another one is substance abuse, drinking or uh, self-medicating. And sometimes a medical field actually can feed that. You can go to your doctor and say, look, I haven't slept in three days. And so the doctor says, here's some um, Ambien, and why don't you try some Xanax as well, or how about some pro, or whatever it happens to be. And so we begin to become reliant on substances outside of ourselves. And I'm not denying their importance, but when we become reliant on those kinds of things, we start to numb ourselves. Numbing is another symptom. Now, numbing is, the way that I define numbing is that I don't tie my emotions to my thoughts or my behavior or what's happening to the world. You know, I can, I can see something, but I don't feel anything from it. That's called numbing. And numbing and the other one is dissociative. We can actually disconnect from what is happening in the world. And we can disconnect from our own experiences so we don't feel, we don't think, we're just totally disconnected from. And again, in relation to trauma, this is normal, mm -hmm. right? The problem is that when it interferes in our lives, right? That's when we need to begin to take care of this. Um, another one is disruption in sleep. Another one is guilt and shame. And this is so, so important. I distinguish between guilt and shame. Guilt for me is I feel guilty for what I've done. Shame is I am a terrible person. I've created this. I made this happen. Something's the matter with me. That is shame. Shame and guilt is two different things. Neither one are helpful, right? But I think that is part and parcel of a tra traumatic event must be my fault, or I must not be a good person, or God is punishing me. Mm -hmm. Or we can do the flip side of that and start to blame other. So the people in our lives who we may have normally dependent or relied on, 
um, our intimate partners, our brothers and sisters, our extended families, our mothers and fathers, uncles, teachers, therapists, whoever we've relied on, all of a sudden we start to blame them. You know, he wasn't supportive enough. She wasn't there for me. And nobody really understands me. So the support, which is really important to help deal with trauma, we start to withdraw from and because we blame other. And so in terms of an intimate partnership, we can have physical withdrawal. So our intimate acts become so disruptive that what used to work all of a sudden doesn't work anymore. We become distant. We don't talk. We don't get our stories out. We don't rely on people anymore. And a piece of that is that when we look at the world, we look and we say, nobody understands me, right? My friends and family, yeah, you know, they'll talk a little bit, but they move on with their lives. I am still here. And, and so people who maybe initially were empathetic actually let go of that empathy because they moved on and I haven't moved on. So what we need in terms of connection, we become more, we feel more isolated and we start to back away more because nobody truly understands. That's what goes through our head, mm -hmm. even our partners, because when we're in, let's say a marriage and my child is diagnosed with 22Q and all the surgeries and all the everything that we go through, right? Even with our intimate partners, they go through it differently. We all go through it differently. We go through mm -hmm. grief differently, we go through trauma differently. So there's a tendency to think, oh, he doesn't even understand or she doesn't give me the support that I need. So there's a tendency to back away and isolate from that person as well. And so we back away from intimate partnerships, we back, back away from family, we back away from friends, we back away from community, we back away from educational systems mm -hmm. that can't provide what we need provided for our, our 22Q child kind of thing. And so this sense of isolation, this sense of doing it by myself, the sense of shame and guilt and depression, reliance on alcohol and drug kind of thing, those are all symptoms. They're all normal reactions to abnormal situations, but at the same time, they can adversely affect our well-being. Right. And I think that's what this is about. Exactly. And if one of our listeners hears all of those examples that you just said, and they said, wow, I can relate to that. What advice do you have for them to start the process of healing from this trauma? What is the, your best piece of advice? Let me get to a, a, another uh, way of dealing with trauma, and that's physical component. Uh, we can somatize without realizing what we're doing. Oh, my face is starting to break out, but we don't relate that to the adverse distress that we're experiencing in our lives, right? I've, I've developed these headaches and I don't quite know where the, or, you know, I had this gastrointestinal kind of thing, or... I'm starting to get really winded when I walk and, and, you know, I'm starting to get palpitations and I'm starting to, to break out and I'm starting to, you know, I got this, I got this back problem in my, in my shoulder just went out a, a week or so ago, but we don't relate that to the trauma that we've actually gone through. Our mind is, is tremendously connected to our bodies. And 
that's a standard thing. Everybody knows that in quotes, mm-hmm. but we don't really know it and understand it. We, a lot of times we poo-paw that as new agey kind of stuff as that. Yeah, I believe it, but I don't really believe it. But there's Beth Israel Hospital in the 70s, I think, might've even been in the 60s. Herb Benson came up with the relaxation response. And he also had a program where he dealt with patients who other doctors had, quote, given up on in terms of pain management. And so he took them into this program. And the way that he came up with a program of learning mindfulness and relaxation and how to deal with with the mind-body connection was that he had gone to um, Tibet. Um, This is a story that I understand. He had gone to Tibet and he had uh, done research on monks who sat outside during the coldest, coldest night of the year in the wintertime. We're talking about sub-degree, sub-zero degree temperatures in loincloths, nothing else, no shirts, no pants, no socks, no shoes, no nothing. Wow. And what they were able to do was lower their body temperature, actually lower their body temperature so they became cold-blooded so they could survive the night. Then they came into inside and they actually raised their body temperature so that when they put wet cloths on them, steam actually came out of their uh, uh, off of the towels, right? Wow. All through this mind-body connection. I remember when I was in the Navy, I was taking karate from this... Uh, uh, this man from Tokyo who had come into Yokosuka, come onto the base once or twice a week, and he would teach us karate, this certain kind of karate. And he took us once to a performance, an exhibit, I'm not exactly sure what you call it, but he took us to, and this old guy comes on stage. This guy looked like he was barely breathing kind of thing. <laughs> and he's surrounded by like nine different experts, black belts, and they all attack him in the same time. And within seconds, he had them all writhing in pain. Then he comes to the front of the stage and he sits on this chair and he holds both his hands out in front of him. And all of a sudden the spotlight comes to his hands and one of his hands gets bigger and bigger and bigger and larger than the other hand. And he keeps it. And then after a few minutes, the hand goes back to normal. And so we're riding on the train back to Tokyo and being a a Western skeptic, I say to our our sensei, I say to him, what is that about? Does he have a a flesh colored glove on and he's pumping it with his foot? Or he said, no, he says, what happened is that it's very similar to when you hit your hand, let's say with a hammer, and the blood blood coagulates and it swells up. He was able to think his blood flow into his hand, stop it there, well, it swelled, and then when he was ready, he redirected his blood flow back. Now, you're talking about a gazillion years of practice mind control with this kind of stuff, and it's stuff that we would never even like be able to do, but I think what it does show, those examples, is that our minds have a huge impact on our physical conditions. So aches and pains, colds, you know, gee, I I don't know why, but I'm getting sick more often than I usually do kind of thing, right? Or I'm feeling more tired 
or I'm not feeling the same energy that I had before. All of those kinds of things are signs of trauma and the adverse effects of trauma. So the physical reactions to trauma as well. Um, so that's a part of, I think, what we mm -hmm. were talking about as well. Yep. Yeah. And that our brains play a huge, huge role when it comes to trauma and how our brains can absorb trauma, even at two months old and store oh. it and form pathways in our brain. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the research I did look into before having, having you on was that trauma can start even as an infant and oh, stay yeah. with us and really yeah. shape who we become um, yeah. and react to the world around us for the rest of our life. And I don't know if you want to touch upon that a little bit as well. So, so that's absolutely correct. And some of the variables in trauma and how we respond to trauma is the age of onset. And believe it or not, the earlier the trauma, the better. If it's a one-time trauma versus ongoing trauma, uh, the amount of support we have or don't have, um, biologically, genetically, how we're made up. Um, if we have co, what they call comorbidity, for example, if I'm a depressed person and I experience trauma, I'm more it's it becomes more difficult for me to deal with the trauma that I'm experiencing. Um, so there's a number of different variables that enter into that, I think is what you're saying. Um, and age is one of those and onset is one of those uh, variables as well. But there's a series of variables. Again, this is not pathology. We're not talking about psychopathology. We're talking about uh, normal responses to abnormal situations. And, and abnormal becomes whatever is normal in our minds and how we see the world and how we're living our lives and a, a shift away from that. And so if you're a, an infant and you are being nurtured and all of a sudden you're experiencing neglect, right? That's a trauma. And so what happens is that what you alluded to are these neural pathways that are created in our minds. So I'm not a scientist, I'm not a geneticist, and what I believe to be true, some of the papers I've read, says that there's a term called neuroplasticity. We used to believe that when I was growing up in the 50s, that you were set in place who you were and who you were going to be for life somewhere around the age of five or six years old, you were like cemented. They used to call it, I don't know if they called it this, but it was basically hardwired. There was nothing you could do about it, right? So then as the 60s, 50s turned into the 60s and 70s, the theory was, well, your, your brain is not totally developed until you're mid-adolescent to sometime in your mid-20s, right? For women, your brain is developed earlier. For men, it takes a long, you know, a longer period of time. But that once you're solidified with that, right, your brain has reached its peak. Who you are is who you are, and it's downhill from there. And there's not much you could do about it. Then, in the last 20 years, they've come up with this idea of neuroplasticity, and what they're saying is that your brain is no longer hardwired. Your brain is more plastic than that. That we have these neural pathways, for lack of a better way of saying it, almost like roadways, right? And so how we think about trauma or how we think of experiences we've had 
or how we have memory, we recreate that over and over and over and over and over again. So it becomes our pattern, our way of dealing with it, right? But with a sense of commitment, with an understanding that you can change that with behavioral and cognitive changes, if you practice over a long period of time, you can actually physiologically change your brain makeup to create new neuropathways that then help you recover from or heal from traumatic experiences. Now, having said that, people like Bessel van der Kuff says that once you experience trauma, it becomes so ingrained that you're not able to change that except to a certain degree. So that's one theory, right? That's how he believes in that. What I believe is that I have seen people who cannot recover from trauma. And then I've seen people who can recover from trauma trauma, and have re recovered from trauma, mm -hmm. right? And again, there's multiple value, variables and, and um, um, elements to recovery from that and moving on with their life. And what are the key elements for individuals who do find a way to heal from trauma? What are their key characteristics or traits that help them do so? So again, people who who don't have comorbidity, for example, are in a much better position. People who have um, who are basically okay, kind of thing, which none of us are, by the way. <laughs> no way. <laughs> You know what I mean, kind of, yes. you know, people who are more stable, probably have a better shot at recovering from trauma, people who don't. But my experience is that people who don't withdraw, people who don't isolate, people who try to stay connected to, to their intimate partners, to their friends, to their support system, to their communities, to the school systems, no matter how hard they are, to their therapists, those people my experience is that they recover because there's a there's a team or supportive community around us. Um, so when I was a child, I was beaten by my father. Uh, he almost killed me once or twice. So that that is a trauma that has followed me through my life. And so how do I heal from that and and move beyond? what I experienced as a child. And so I connect with my wife. I connect with my extended family. I connect, I have a, uh, a community of friends. Now, I didn't always do that. My mm -hmm. trauma turned into addiction. And so once I sobered up from drug and alcohol addiction, and I started to connect in a, in a in sincere way, and I created without really knowing it, but I created a supportive community around me I found that extremely helpful for me. Um, uh, so bonding with family, bonding with friends, bonding with community, I think is is just, I, I can't even say how important it is, but it's a struggle because as we said earlier, our tendency is to say they don't understand. When people come to me who have experienced trauma, rather be 22Q or whatever other trauma they experience, one of the things I do, because I don't know what to do when people talk about trauma, because trauma is so, sometimes I'll cry in a session 
because it's so hard for what people will go through. And it's amazing to me that people are even able to sustain what they're sustaining. All I can do is hold their story, mm -hmm. you know, and just be there. And I think people who experience trauma, particularly with 20, having children or child of who diagnosed with 22Q, it's hard to find people who can just hold your story. So you can talk and get it out. Now that's mm -hmm. not the only thing, but that is so important. And I'm telling you, you're not going to find many people who can hold a story. That's right? a great point to mention is that the stuff that we do share sometimes is super heavy and unimaginable to a, or a parent of a neurotypical child. So that's great that you mentioned that as oh, well. Absolutely. Because what most people will do, they'll say, gosh, you're so strong. You know, God, I, I don't know if I could go through that or, um, or, you know, it's going to get better or, you know, Hey, if you need anything, give me a call. Right. Kind of thing. But they, they can't leave you soon enough because their own anxiety about not knowing what to do is, is they just, they can't hold it. So if you can find one or two people, either a therapist or a loving partner or whoever friend or even a community member, a priest, a rep, I mean, whoever, who can hold your story over a period of time. Because what a lot of people do is even if they can hold your story initially, after a few months, you know, when they've moved on and you need somebody to talk to and you go to them and they go, oh yeah, 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 I understand. Yeah, I get it. Yep, 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 yep. Oh, gotta run, right? Mm -hmm. Because again, it's, whole, it's hard to hold a story over a period of time. So right. one or two people in your life that you can talk with and tell your story to, I think can be tremendously helpful for people. Just sitting with someone's grief is really hard tremendously difficult but it comes from this ability not to need to fix but just need to hold and just to be there at, what do they they call they call like doing witness you know just to witness somebody else is is trauma or the distress or adverse effects of trauma is again it's difficult but if you find one or two people even a group I mean, you know, for some people, groups work really well. For me, groups don't work very well, but for other people, they do. So I think that's one. I think the other is, is sometimes you can turn trauma into a, a redefined sense of purpose or meaning in your life. So there's a book, and it's entitled Man's Search for Meaning. It's by uh, an author, Viktor Frankl. Now, Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist a Jewish psychiatrist who was in the concentration camps. And what he started to see was when people gave up and they were actually, he knew when people were going to die within a few weeks, but he noticed where he could almost pinpoint people who had just totally given up and were either going to die or kill themselves or come down with, um, or be gassed, right? Mm -hmm. What he did is he started to run small groups for men. And these groups were to give men purpose and meaning in life. 
Now you got to ask, how can somebody find meaning in life being in a concentration camp and being treated like, like, like they were treated? And so examples that he gives in the book is men would come up with, you know what? I'm going to survive this concentration camp and I'm in order to tell the world what has happened here. Mm -hmm. I'm going to spread the word of what's happened. Other men would say, you know, I'm going to survive this and I'm going to populate this world with as many Jewish <laughs> descendants as possible, right? So each man started to develop this, a higher calling, a sense of purpose beyond themselves that they continued to strive for. So when they began to get hopeless, when they began to get too tired and, and just, just giving up, they had this higher sense of purpose that they could reach towards that drove them to survive. And mm -hmm. so I think with 22Q, it's very similar to that. You've done that, right? Mm -hmm. This podcast is a redefinition of purpose and meaning in your life. Absolutely. You're going to try to reach out to as many people as you can reach out to be as helpful as you possibly can. That's a, it, you didn't, before you had Gabe, you, this was not in your like forefront. Not at all. <laughs> Even initially when you had Gabe and you were like just struggling to survive and feeling so overwhelmed and, and everything was so crisis oriented and an emergent kind of situation, you didn't have this meaning. The only meaning was I need to do what I got to do to make sure my child is going to survive, mm -hmm. to make sure that he's okay, right? And that we're okay as a family. And so it was like, that's what you had to focus on. Once you got on somewhat on the other side of that, because it's not over yet, no. there's still major concerns about when Gabe gets sick, for example, and oh my God, we got to make sure he's not going to be hospitalized. We got to make sure he's okay. So that's still ongoing. But at the same time, you're able to shift and redefine purpose in terms of, okay, I still need to take care of family, but you know, I'm going to find meaning and purpose in helping others as well. Right. So that's another way of dealing with trauma and, and turning it into some, and you did that with the loss of your mom as well. Youth driven and, and He's my driven. public speaking. Yeah, no. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. And I've always admired your resilience like that and, and the ability to do that. Thank you. That's, a, that's another way of doing this. I wrote these down. Um, so that's very similar to a commitment to a personal mission, right? And it doesn't necessarily have to be around 22Q, right? Personal missions can be any sort of thing, right? I'm going to become a, uh, a coach for my community football league, right? That's my mission to help these kids grow up healthy and strong and, and not to be competitive, but to be cooperative and to learn what they need to learn from sport. That could be a personal mission, right? right. I know one woman who started to work and volunteer for Make-A-Wish, Make-A-Wish Foundation. And so she occupied a lot of her free time in putting together families and, don and, and, and donors with kids who, who had wishes to go to Florida or to meet their celebrity or, and that was her mission. It wasn't necessarily a 22 Q mission, but mm -hmm. that was her mission. Mm -hmm. um, that's very similar to that. A, a revision of priorities can also be very helpful when healing from trauma. And like, 
I'm going to prioritize family over my work. Because before I, I had child, I work was so important and my career was the most important thing for me. You know what? Ain't so much anymore, right? I, I think I'm going to prioritize something different now. And all these things that I'm saying, if you think about it, are movements forward, right? What trauma has a tendency to do is get us stuck in a position of non-movement in life, mm -hmm. either through alcohol and drug or depression or anxiety or, or just the trauma and all the adverse effects we're talking about. What I'm beginning to talk about is movement in a direction outside of that stuckness. Right. And it doesn't happen overnight. No. And the grief that you go through and the and all the we need to work through takes time. But mm -hmm. these are all ideas to move forward. I mean, you don't reprioritize in your life overnight. You know, you're not going to find purpose and meaning in something different overnight. Mm -hmm. But develop as a process. Mm -hmm. so, in my mind's eye, like the podcast that you're doing, this has developed over time for you. It becomes a seed of thought that processes, evolves, that moves forward, right? And I think that's what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. This forward movement in life, whereas trauma wants us to stay stuck. Right. Because we're scared to move because we tried to move and look what happened kind of thing. Mm -hmm become fearful of movement without even knowing we're fearful of movement. So anything that begins to move you forward, going into therapy. That was my next question. So if someone's feeling it and listening to this and maybe thinking, wow, that's me, how do I even make that first step? What, what, what can I do to start the process of moving forward? Well, I think, I think listening to the podcast is a great idea. If you feel isolated, to try to step forward in terms of connecting with people. But I think therapy can be extremely helpful. Now, having said that, I've been doing therapy for 45 years and there's a bunch of shit therapists out there. <laughs> I, don't, I don't consider myself a particularly good therapist, but I'm good enough to help people move forward. I think that's great that you mentioned that because I mean, for, I don't mind sharing this for me on my personal journey. It took me three therapists before I found my therapist. So, and I found a couple of really bad ones and then I found a really great one and it takes time. I think that's a really great point. That's exactly right. And, and my sense is that if people go into therapy and you ain't clicking in the first two or three sessions, leave, go mm -hmm. somewhere else and find somebody. Don't waste your time. I tell people during the, after the first session, I go, I don't know if you want to do that, have another session. I don't know if you like me or if you think I can be helpful. So there's two elements of getting a good therapist. One is you connect with them, right? But just connecting with somebody is not good enough. I mean, you can connect with somebody, they're a nice person, you're a nice person, but you could talk forever and go nowhere, mm -hmm. right? The two elements is one is you connect. And the second element is you get a sense that this person can be helpful, right? They're pushing me a little bit, but not too much. They're holding my story. They're able to be empathetic, but also say, okay, let's, let's move just a little bit. They're not dogmatic. They're not trying to get you into mm -hmm. a set of their theoretical frame, which a lot of therapists do because 
And I'll tell you why therapists do this in my mind is because the human mind is so complicated. Most of us don't know what we're doing. Mm. So as a way, we default to some sort of theoretical or dogmatic frame that we try to fit clients into. If you wish somebody like that, drop them and go to somebody else. Mm -hmm. But if you want somebody that you connect with and that can challenge you a little bit while being loving and kind and considered and cooperative and can move you forward, you've got the good therapist. Trust me, you owe therapists nothing. Right. Because when you go into therapy, they're making their $117 an hour from insurance and your copay. Right. You owe them an obligation like you would a a, a spouse or 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 a sister or a brother or a friend, right? You owe nothing to a therapist. And I mm-hmm. tell people that don't yeah. take my feelings in consideration. I am fine. Right, exactly. And I think it's great that you mentioned, you know, find someone to talk to, whether that is a professional, a therapist, or just find community, right. share what you're feeling, know that it's okay to share what you're feeling. Can you think of any other ways if someone says, you know, I'm not really ready to go to a therapist, what other ways, like whether it's exercise or meditation, journaling, what other ways could people start to unravel their past trauma? So connecting community is good. Um, trying something different, I think is very important. I mean, if you've worked out for 30 years and you're experiencing trauma and you continue to work out, chances are it's not going to make a huge difference for you. But if you could change the workout, whatever it happens to be that's different in your life, you could do Reiki, yoga, meditation. The caveat with meditation is meditation can be triggering. Right now, triggering means any situation externally that that makes us feel overwhelmed or makes us feel numb or disassociated or depressed or anxious or all the symptoms we talked about when a situation uh, triggers that it triggers that kind of adverse response. So if you're going to enter into something like meditation, because I've had people who meditate who actually uh, are re-traumatized through the meditation. Oh. So meditation is not for everybody. Relaxation right. is not for everybody kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So there's caveats to certain things. So if whatever you're going to do, if you're going to do Reiki, if you're going to um, change careers, if you're going to uh, volunteer, if it's triggering, you may not want to do that. Right. right? Or if it creates flashbacks. Mm-hmm. Now, between triggering and, and and flashbacks is triggering is an external event that creates this emotional response, right? Flashbacks are actual pictorial or memories, right, of what's happened. Wow. Okay. All right. Those are two differences. So right. I have an example. So would this be a flashback or a um trigger? Trigger. Thank you. Uh for example, for me. Whenever I go to Boston Children's Hospital and use the hand towel dispenser in the restroom, the sound of the paper coming out of the paper dispenser is that it? I immediately just go back to when my son was in the cardiac ICU because it was the same sound and I was washing my hands constantly to make sure I, he wasn't getting sick. So I instantly get sad. Whenever I hear the paper dispenser in the bathroom, would that be a flashback or a trigger? That's a trigger because okay. that's an emotional response. If okay. you 
have a almost a pictorial memory of gosh i remember uh when when we had when i was st- sitting next to gabe in the icu and x y and z happened that's a flashback okay memory of the event that happens okay. that's a flashback when when you're doing the dispenser and you hear the sound and you get the sadness that's a trigger to it okay so it's a trigger thank you right. i've always wondered like <laughs> First of all, am I crazy? But no, I'm not. It was just a really traumatic experience. And my brain is remembering from, I know that smell is usually a typical trigger, but your for brain, sound too. Your brain and your body. Mm-hmm. Remembering. That's mm-hmm. exactly right. Yeah. And I think, and, and I'll repeat this a million times. It's not pathology. Mm-hmm. You to feel that. And, and sometimes all you got to do is just stay with the emotion, right? Don't run away from it. You don't need to numb out. Just allow yourself to feel that sadness and then you can move on from it. Mm-hmm. What happens is a lot of times is when we get triggered and we feel what we feel, we then put meaning on top of it. Oh my God, I can't stand this. Am I going to feel this the rest of my life? What's the matter with me? Am I ever going to get over this? I can't believe this is happening. That's meaning on top of what we're feeling. A lot of times, if you could just allow yourself to feel what you feel, the trauma that you've experienced, you don't need to be afraid of it, Mm -hmm. right? Just sit with it. Sit with the sadness that you're feeling, right? Right. And it's the meaning that we put on our experiences that blows it up and creates the heaviness and the the pathology. But Mm -hmm. if you can sit with that feeling in the bathroom Mm -hmm. and all need to cry or if you need to just sit with it and then you can go along with your 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 life kind of thing right yeah no it's a great advice because it's i'm sure other parents experience something like that whether they go to a repeat visit or even the children that have 22q whether they go to the doctor's appointment again and they see a blood pressure cuff and they get nervous instantly and think that they're going to go to an mri and yeah those triggers no thank you that's the really thing, helpful. The thing with 22Q is that this is a lifelong process, mm-hmm. right? And so things are going to continue to come up. Mm-hmm. It's going to continue to surface. And if you can do some of the things that we're talking about, I think they can be really helpful. Right. And I also wanted to mention, you mentioned one already, but what other mental health conditions are associated with trauma? We had mentioned PTSD really quickly, but I didn't know if you want to briefly just talk about other possible things that might come up. Depression, anxiety, overeating, substance abuse, mm-hmm. uh, uh, feelings of being overwhelmed, and uh, withdrawal. Would borderline personality disorder also be under there? Yeah, there's a there's an idea that now border. Yeah, there's an idea that borderline personality, all borderline personality, stems from early childhood experiences of trauma. Gotcha. And, absolutely, and that could be. That could be at the age of four, like you said. It could be age of two months old, like you said. It could be 15, 16 years old. It could be in your 20s kind of thing. But that's early trauma that actually begins. And borderline personality is a protective in my mind, right? Okay. A lot of people see that as pathology. For me, it's a protective set of manipulative behaviors that I have learned, right, to keep me protected in the world. Right. If I get too close, I know how to blow people out of the water so I can get distant. Right. While it's hard and it's isolating and I hate it, 
it mm -hmm. also protects me at the same time. So the borderline personality traits, right, are more protective than anything else. And so is a lot of things. Depression can be very protective. You know, if I'm depressed and can't get out of bed, I'm safe. You're safe. Mm -hmm. Right. If I'm anxious, I've got all my bases covered. So we do these kinds of uh, behaviors that are adv have adverse effects. And people look at us and go, man, why don't you just calm down? Right. Or just get out of bed, you know, just start, just exercise because of dopamine, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But what happens is that they become uh, maladaptive kinds of behaviors that protect us from the trauma and our ways of dealing with the trauma. So I don't know if I went off and answered your question. No, that's fine. No, yeah. I just wanted to mention that. Major depression, personality yeah. disorder, DID, which is mm -hmm. dissociative identity disorder, which we talked about, the old right. uh, multiple personalities. There's anxieties. There's obsessive compulsive disorders. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of these disorders, in quotes, can be seen as a, a adverse attempts of dealing with trauma. Got it. As can, oh, my my back all of a sudden just gone out and I, I just can't, I just, that is also an adverse effect. It can be an adverse effect of trauma. In fact, I read a book one time years ago that said all back pain is from trauma. Now, really? I don't buy that. I, I really don't. I mean, I, I was in an accident early on in my life that gave me back problems, but I can also tell you that in my 20s, 30s, and early 40s, that back pain would put me on my back sometimes for 10 days at a time. I couldn't lift a finger without being in pain. Mm. I'd gone to emergency rooms. I was taking medications. I haven't had that in 30 years. Wow. I lift. I exercise. I, I, my back pain, while it's a dull pain, doesn't restrict me in any way. And that has to do, in my case, not in everybody's case, but in my case, it has to do with working through the trauma of my early childhood abuse. Mm -hmm. And so my back pain does, is not restrictive like it used to be. Right. Our bodies and our brains are incredible. It really is. And it is so connected to our emotions and what's happened to us. And I think that is the huge takeaway from today's episode is just it's all connected. Your brain can heal from these traumatic experiences with neuroplasticity and with doing the hard work of talking to someone or exercising or finding community and recognizing them and, and recognizing that it happens to a lot. I was, I saw it somewhere that it was 70% of us citizens have experienced traumatic trauma. You had mentioned that most individuals experience some sort of trauma or traumatic experience in their life. So, And I think the brilliance behind what you've just said is that when we experience trauma, we think we're the only ones in the world. And mm -hmm. so we become more isolated from people, which makes it harder to recover from the trauma we've experienced. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. So find what, find what works for you. Right. Your recommendation. Right. And as part of the process of healing, and, and or managing our trauma is to find what works for you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, rather that reprioritizing things or finding meaning and purpose differently or reading or working out or, or whatever it happens to be. And for me, it's for me and my trauma, 
although it's different than 22Q trauma, it's always been about trial and error and not giving up, having a certain persistence that I'm going to work this out and I'm determined to work this out so I can minimize the adverse effects and I can continue to live my life and help my child live his or her life in the best possible way. And that takes dogged persistence. I got to tell you, you know, my father, um, even though he never would win Father of the Year Award, he, when I was about 11 or 12 years old, he never talked to me, by the way. He was very distant. He left a plaque on my desk at home. And it was a plaque that said something along the line. I think it was a quote by Woodrow Wilson or somebody. And it said something along the line. There are many talented people who have failed. There are many people who are creative who never make it. He said, the one the one quality you need in life is persistence. And I think with trauma, that's true. And a lot of things we may try may not be effective or may not be helpful. Sometimes I've found for me and for other people, what is not helpful now may be helpful a year or two down the road. But it's all about, I try, it doesn't work. I'll try something else, I'll try. It's keeping that hope alive, keeping the flame burning, and keeping that determination and persistence over a period of time that actually brings us out and allows us to manage and have a decent life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's my take on this. Great advice. I love that. Thank you so much, Larry. And is there anything else you'd like to share or we didn't touch upon? I'm sure when we <laughs> hang out, I'll think about it a gazillion things, but I can't think of anything right now. Well, that was amazing. And, and I really appreciate your deep dive into trauma and understanding trauma as a whole. So thank you so much for your perspective and your knowledge and wisdom on the topic. And I appreciate you being on the podcast today. You're more than welcome. And thank you for having me on the podcast. This is as important to me as it is to you, I think. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Larry, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I have no doubt that this episode will be able to help so many individuals recognize their trauma and begin to heal from it. I know the one thing I will always remember from this episode is persistence is key. So thank you, thank you, thank you again. And to all of our listeners, thank you for sharing, liking, and following our podcast. You can subscribe anywhere you like to listen to podcasts. And 22Q family, never forget that you are not alone.